welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and Happy New Year. We're in 2020. It's been a heck of a year for politics. Indeed, it's been a heck of a decade, and yes, I know it's not technically the end of a decade, but everyone treats it as such. So, I decided to do a solo episode because it's been mostly interviews for a while, and I sort of took a look back at both the current divisions on the left and the sort of current conversations we're having, and tried to sort of situate them in the history of the last 10 years or so. And in doing so, I sort of ended up inadvertently creating an original account of how the divisions within the Democratic Party function and how they've been leading us to reliably lose elections. This was sort of a tough one to record, because I'm sort of critical of everyone in this one, and there's going to be something in this episode that will upset everyone. So I sort of urge you to listen to the whole thing. It's quite long, so I'm not saying listen to it all in one sitting, but try and take in the full theory that I'm, or the full framework that I'm trying to give you here before you decide that you hate this. The other thing I'll say is that this was quite an emotional episode in many ways. One of the things I note in this is how heated and how unpleasant and how personal many of the conversations that we've been having on the left have turned out to be. And I find myself in the weird position that I can kind of see it from everyone's point of view. And in this episode, I try and give voice to those different points of view, and I sort of, at various moments, get in character and are like, this is what these people feel. Again, not think, feel. I'm describing where people are at emotionally, and to do it, I was quite emotional. And so that's just something to, to keep in mind. A final point, and you can tell I'm a little bit nervous about this one. I was nervous about this one in the same way as I was nervous about the humiliation one, in that I put quite a lot of myself into this, and it isn't just theory or just analysis or just an intellectual game. We're talking about some of the deepest feelings people have, and myself included in that. Um, but a final point to remember in this is I'm offering you a story, a parable, nothing more. I don't think this explains everything, and I say at many points there's stuff that, you know, is external to this story. I do think it explains some stuff, and I think it offers a better account of why the left has been losing than merely to say it's because centrists have been in charge, or it's because progressives have been in charge. I start by looking at both of those two narratives, and I find them both wanting. So, if you're approaching this with a view of just a hardline commitment to one of those narratives, either or, you will probably dislike this episode. I'm more saying I am trying to give you a third way of looking at it that is informed by my understanding of political theory, but is also just informed by 10 years' experience and being best friends with these with activists and knowing how they feel about it. Again, feel. So that's where I'm coming from on this. It's quite long, so I'll just get straight to it. 
This is, to start the new year, me talking about activists, elites, and the left. asking a question that just a few weeks prior I had apologised for having asked. In both cases, though, I think I have good reason, both for withdrawing the question in the first place and for bringing it up again here. The question is, what is there to be learned here in America from the recent UK election? Now, the reason I withdrew the question in the first place and in fact the reason I'm bringing it up again now, is it's been clear that interpretations over what lessons or morals we might have drawn from the UK election had become a proxy battle for a very heated ideological divide on the left in America about what the correct strategy is for us to beat Trump. Do we need as Joe Biden and his supporters would have it, and as many centrist columnist scolds would have it, do we need to moderate to meet these Pennsylvania working-class white voters where they're at and put out a sort of Clinton-esque, sent-away, compromise type solution and ignore these crazy people on the left? Or have the centrists the consensus people, been offering us a vacuous vision that doesn't stir up the fire in the belly, that doesn't relate to real voters' concerns, that actually turns people off, and that's why the left's been losing. Is it actually the case that we need someone who's going to put forward a clear, straightforward plan for what they will do to help ordinary people in their lives? And... That's what's going to win us an election, a bold, decisive vision. And the reason I withdrew the question is it was clear that people weren't really analysing the UK election. They were reading into it their preferred narrative, and that the clash between those narratives had moved well past a disagreement between allies on the best strategy, but had become something very, very heated, vicious even. And I sort of thought, well, you know, I was sort of interested in this from like a political nerd perspective. But if me asking it is contributing to that viciousness, which I think is ultimately counterproductive, then maybe I shouldn't be asking it. Now, I return to it again here because I've been thinking about this and I've been playing it over and over and over in my head. And I think both sides of this dispute are getting things wrong. This isn't a statement about who I agree with more when it comes to the ideological divide. My personal preferences are more on the left side. It's, it's more a question of why has it become this vicious? And why are people on both sides deeply committed 
to narratives that on some level they must know don't make a lot of sense, on both sides. And I was thinking about this, and I sort of processed it through some of the other original work I've done, and I came up with an account, a narrative, a framework for thinking about this. Not to try and say, here's who's right and who's wrong, but to try and provide a way of thinking about the underlying structures that produced this dispute in the first place. And it seemed like a good time to do it, as the first episode heading into 2020, to look back at the last decade. And yes, I know there's some stupid online dispute about what counts as a decade. I don't care. I'm counting this as a decade. But to look back at the last decade and try and provide a different narrative to the two that I just flashed out, both of which I think sort of fail to explain a decade in which both the centre-left and the far-left have lost badly. Like, what is the moral of the 20-teens, if you can call it that? What's our takeaway? Because we've... And I say we, I sort of mean the British and American left here. But this actually goes for the left in a lot of European countries. I mean, I don't know their politics as well. But from what I can see, with maybe a couple of exceptions, this has not been a good decade for, for the left. We've lost elections and we've lost ground in a lot of countries. And certainly the place we find ourselves in, the US and the UK, which are the two countries I know particularly, is not a great place to be in. And I think. As much as anything, we want to try and process that in some sense. And I am not saying, by the way, at all, that this particular narrative, this framework that I've come up with for thinking about this, in any way gives like all the answers or explains everything. It's a particular pair of glasses for looking at the world, and I think it provides some insights that other frameworks don't, but it's also going to miss a lot of stuff that gets captured by other frameworks. So anyway, let's get back to this original question that I started with. What are the takeaways for the American left of the recent quite disastrous election for the British left? Now, a lot of American conservatives, American centrists, have jumped on and said, See, this just proves if you embrace a hardcore socialist platform, you will lead your party to sure defeat. Now, I think that narrative is inadequate. One thing, it fails to explain away the last British election in which Labour Party, under the same leadership, did okay. I mean, they didn't win, but they didn't get obliterated either. It also fails to explain that many of the individual policies that were supposedly the cause of Labour's doom are actually quite popular. A lot of what gets branded far left in the context of the UK, something like nationalising the railways, spending more on the NHS, um, even worker-controlled businesses and so on, are quite popular ideas. So. I think this sort of centrist narrative has a hard time explaining away why a party that did all right before with ideas that could poll quite well was doomed necessarily 
by those ideas. I also think they have a hard time explaining away the direct opinion polling we have, which suggests that the party's left-wing stance was not the main issue that caused voters to defect from Labour to the Tories in that election. The main three issues in order, and again, um, this goes with all of the usual caveats about polling and that it can be inaccurate and that people sort of often respond to questions in different ways. But the issues in order that caused Labour Party members, or voters, sorry, to defect were the leadership of the party, number one, the party's Brexit stance, number two, then only about 20%, and I say only, only about 20% said it was because of these left-wing issues. Now, that's some polling that doesn't really comfort anyone's narrative. You know, the overtly, staunchly socialist direction was a factor in Labour losing votes, but it wasn't the main factor. The main factor was the perceptions of Jeremy Corbyn as someone who just was not competent to lead the country. And I'm going to come back to that point and how I think those perceptions were generated. Now, conversely, does that does this story offer any support for the other side? Well, not really. I mean, I think the best you can make of it is that having left-wing policies wasn't the main reason that Corbyn lost. Now, what I'm actually hearing from some people on that side is that it kind of proves somehow that socialism is the best way and that this kind of, like, proves we should be supporting a socialist in the United States. The narrative goes something like this. Corbyn lost because he compromised. He had an unclear Brexit position, and, you know, people wanted clarity, they wanted a decisive stand, and had he merely embraced a sort of liberal democrat revoke position, he would have won. And the moral of the story is don't try to meet conservatives in the middle, carve out your own ground so people know clearly what you stand for. Now, that narrative just doesn't work at all, because Labour largely retained the Remain votes that it had from the 2017 election. So in other words, Labour is in an electorally very tricky position where it has a coalition which is something like two-thirds Remain voters and a third Leave voters. And the voters that they had in 2017 but lost in 2019 were the Leave voters, or some meaningful chunk of them, because in the last election, Labour was still committed to a Brexit of a sort, albeit a softer Brexit than the Tories, but nonetheless, Labour Leave voters, and these are actually my people, people from um, the northeast of England, in small towns and so on, this is like where I come from, I probably, a lot of like my friends in high school, like their dads, would have been these type of voters, I think. Um, those are the people that broke. So saying they'd have won if they were more clear on Brexit, whereas actually the fact that they moved towards the more the main side was probably the reason they lost those voters. Now, it's also the case that maybe if they'd have stayed as a Brexit party, then more of their Remain voters would have been siphoned off to the Lib Dems, 
So it might well be they're just in a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario. Um, but I don't think it makes any sense to say if only they had been more ideologically pure, they would have won. I don't think that narrative works, because even if they're able to gain some amount of Lib Dem voters by being hardline on Brexit, it, it seems really hard for me to believe that that would be able to replace the quarter of their electorate who defected to them, who defected to the Tories because they were Leave supporters. That just doesn't seem plausible to me. So the idea that they lost because they weren't pure enough, and this proves that our politicians just need to be more rigorously left-wing, that's not a narrative that coheres with the facts. And I think why some people, and I don't condone this, by the way, but I think why some people on the sort of centrists of the party are crowing so hard about this is that um, progressives can't have it both ways. When Jeremy Corbyn did, not even one, did better than expected in 2017, every Sanders supporter in the world was saying, see, this just proves that Sanders would have won if we'd have nominated him in 2016. We wouldn't have Trump right now if we'd have only nominated Sanders, and Jeremy Corbyn proves that. Now, that was never a great argument in its own terms, because Corbyn didn't win. He lost. He just lost by less than people expected him to. But that's what people said. And, you know, we, we, I think we all know that had Corbyn, in some miracle, won, that everyone, every progressive in the world would say, see, this proves we need to have a progressive. And so this isn't like an argument against the position as such. But I think where people are coming from is that you can't have it both ways. If you want to claim 2017 vindicated your side of the story, then surely 2019 undercuts it. Now, no one wants to hear that, right? But, like, that's a fair enough argument. Now, what they will say is, oh, yeah, well, what about 2016? 2016 surely proves that people are sick and tired of this focus group-tested, bland, mealy-mouthed, corporatist, free-market centrism. Nobody wants that. If you run a Hillary Clinton, you're going to lose to a Trump. Well... Okay, that's a fair point too, right? But I think where this lands us is that both sides can point to things that are counterexamples to the other side, but both sides really struggle to explain their own counterexamples. Now, what happens is both sides then will have to go outside of their narrative and bringing, bring in external events in order to explain those counterexamples. So, the progressive will say, it is not that Jeremy Corbyn lost because of his progressive policies, he lost because of this Brexit thing. Now, there's some truth to that, but there is also the truth that the main reason people said they switched from Labour wasn't Brexit, it was him, his leadership. That's interesting, and I'm going to get back to that. Now, the centrists will say, 
it's not that Hillary Clinton, per se, lost because of her centrism. That was probably an asset. It was Russia, or this, or that, or whatever. Now, that's true. Russia did intervene. It's true that the Comey letter didn't help her. But it's also true that she clearly lost the excitement and the enthusiasm that the activist wing of the party had had for Obama. And that also probably was decisive against it. It was a close election. There's probably several, I've said this before, there's probably multiple factors that's decisive. And more than that, I think both of these narratives just fail, and they actually both fail in the same ways. That if you look at the last 10 years, we have had bad losses for both the American left and the British left. And we've had some victories, like the, the last midterms we had in, in the US. Now, in all of that, you have both strong centrists and strong progressives losing winnable elections. You also, in the rare victories, have both sides of that, both progressives and centrists, winning occasionally. So if you look at the midterms, you can point and say, ah, you know, this person was more affiliated with the progressive wing and they did great. Um, you can also point to, like, just off the top of my head, my seat I live in, Staten Island, where we've had a Republican congressional representative for a long time. But the person who won, Max Rose, was very much a sort of centristy plague on both their houses. I don't like Nancy Pelosi type of Democrat, and he, he won quite convincingly. You know, so you can point to both sides of it. And I think the first point to make is both sides are just doing special pleading. They're both just doing reasoning by anecdote, right? They're both just saying, look, at this case, this case, this case, that proves me. And when a, a case that contradicts that narrative comes up, they go, oh, well, that's because of this other special thing. The other thing is I think this just doesn't match up either of these narratives with what we know about the actual psychology of voting. By and large, and there are exceptions to this, but by and large, policy is not what drives partisan preferences. By and large, identity to different groups does. Senses of belonging, senses of these are my people, senses of having a team, Senses of an underlying resonance of values and language. People are very political. They're very ideological, but they're ideological in the sense that they absorb narratives and values and senses of belonging. I, I was just having a conversation about this that'll be out next week. But the idea that voters sit down and they read a list of policies and they go, you know, either way, right, that they go, oh, you know, well, I don't like the Democrats are too left-wing on this, but oh, I do see this Democrat has incrementally uh, moderated his stance on X, Y, Z and issues, so, you know, I might vote for him. Or conversely, that people sit down and they go, you know, um, I, I haven't supported anyone because they have been supporters of um, X, Y and Z trade policies. But now I, I see this person's coming along and they have this position on trade that I agree with. There are people who do that, but that's not the norm, right? And to the extent that people talk about policy preferences, it's usually just a, it's a way of expressing underlying values. And you can see that with the way that policy preferences change. 
but values stay constant. So Republicans have gone from being very free trade and supportive of, you know, the global financial order, whatever you want to call it, um, to being much more cautious on it, right? And that's not that they've really sat down and, oh, I've looked at these economic textbooks and, you know, I just, I was really convinced by the idea of perfect competition, market equilibrium, but now I've, now I've read Piketty. I'm, I'm beginning to have second thoughts. That wasn't the process. The process was they really attached themselves to Donald Trump, who had a particular rhetoric on this, and they, they followed the leader. The values didn't change. But the, the, the sort of policy expression of those values did. And so, you know, that matches the data as well, right? Because if I were to try to adjudicate, you know, I've got two big sets of anecdotes, right? This is where... Progressives lose, this is where centrists lose. You know, my response there would be statistics. Well, well, which narrative is more common on average? And the statistical answer that I've got from most political science is it doesn't make much of a difference. It makes some. In marginal cases, like in particularly in swing districts, there's a few percentage points advantage to running a centrist. So, like, policy seems to matter a little bit at the edges. But also the evidence we have is that that effect is declining. As the country becomes more partisan, those sorts of differences matter less. And the simple, you know, which team you belong to kind of overrides everything else. So if from, you know, political science and just like our own, you know, intuitive sense of how people think, we kind of know that these sorts of ideological questions aren't the main thing. And we sort of know from statistics, well, this is just sort of the answer. There's maybe a slight advantage to the centrist, but it's, it's nothing that couldn't be counteracted with a strong candidate. Why are we so invested in saying that one side is the way to win? Because my approach would be to say, well, if it doesn't make much difference either way, just vote for what you believe in. You know, I'm going to support a progressive because I would rather have a progressive precedent. And I don't think the centrists have made the case strongly enough that that isn't the right strategy. I don't think I've seen yet that there is a significant enough electoral or strategic cost for me not to do that. So if it's kind of a bit of a wash all over... I'll have a progressive just because that's what I believe in, and that actually sort of just is where I'm at. But we don't do that. We really hang to this narrative that having a progressive is a sure way to lose. You're doomed. Doomed. They use this word all the time. Whereas the progressives are like, you're delusional. They keep using this word, and I just, I, I've kind of just found it funny at this point, that whenever you disagree with a Bernie supporter, delusional, delusional, delusional to think you can run another Hillary. It's just delusion. It's like every third sentence they use this word. Why is it delusional? You, you can run, I mean, we can run a centrist and they could win. Easily. Right? Trump is quite beatable. Why is that delusional to think? You might prefer we don't because you'd rather a progressive president. And hey, I, I, I agree with you. But why is it delusional? We don't have evidence of that. And so rather than... Here's where I want to pause and say, if you're feeling attacked at this point, that wasn't my intention. My, my, my 
intention is to just set up a question, which is, if we don't have that much evidence for either of these narratives, and if at the end of the day it actually doesn't matter that much, like, like I say, if it's a wash, just vote for who you like, you know, if it doesn't matter that much, why are we so committed to them? And here's the answer, here's the answer I've come up with. And this is an answer I've come up with sort of using political theory that I've done to make sense of something that I've observed for the last 10 years or so working in politics and working in activism that I've just sort of had a sense of and I've tried to process it through the filter of some of the frameworks that I found in political theory is that it's kind of a form of class conflict. And by class conflict, I mean it's the necessary opposition of cultures and languages and behaviours that arise from an asymmetric power structure. So to work that back in reverse, you know, whenever you have a structure in which some people systemically have more power and some people have less, those two sets of people develop different beliefs about the world, different ways of describing it, and the, those differences will necessarily come into conflict with each other. So that was quite a, like, Marxist way of describing class structure, as in it's something arising from a power differential. I'm going to give a bit of a twist on that, and instead of Marx, I'm going to take Machiavelli as my mentor. I did this huge series on Machiavelli, but you don't need to have listened to that. I'm going to give you one of the key takeaways here, which is a different way of understanding class, which is primarily psychological rather than economic. And what I'm going to propose is a bit like the city-state analogy in Plato. Do you all know this, right? Plato says, if we want to find out what justice looks like in one man's soul, let's look for what it looks like in the city, justice writ large, and maybe there'll be some sort of parallel here. So, following from that, what I want to say is, I'm going to sketch an account of what I think a class conflict looks like in societies, in nations, in states as a whole. And then I'm going to say, does that particular model, that particular story I've just told, does that have an analogue within a specific institution within those states? In this case, a political party, the Democratic Party. So just to recap, I'm going to say, I'm going to describe class conflict writ large, what it looks like in a state. And then I'm going to say, there might be something that that story can also be told on a smaller scale within the confines of a particular institution. So this is a metaphor, right? This is a way of understanding the world. It doesn't explain everything, and there's a couple of points in this story I'm going to point out that there's factors external to the story that also come in, but I want to try and make sense of this divide within one framework, and I want to try and explain why both the progressives and the centrists have lost elections on their own terms, without having to bring in 
Brexit or the Russians or anything like that, to make sense of all of it within the internal dynamics of this story and to also explain why these narratives have come to matter so much and why they've come to be so visceral. So I'm not saying that there's not external dynamics to this story. I'm saying I'm trying to tell a story that is internally coherent and that makes sense of the different results we've seen within that internal coherence. So let's do the writ large first. So I'm just going to super quick sketch out. If you want the detail of this, go to my Machiavelli thing. But I'm just going to very quickly sketch out a model of what class conflict and why it's a good thing looks like in Machiavelli. So let's start with a quick quote. This is from chapter four of the discourses. And the chapter is, quote, that the divisions between the Senate and the commons of Rome made Rome free and powerful, end quote. So in other words, the title is a praise of class conflict. The conflict between the elites and the people, quote, made Rome free and powerful. And he goes on to say, I am going to praise, the word gets translated as tumults, but I think I'm increasingly convinced you could translate it as riots. He says, I'm going to praise riots in the early Roman Republic. I think these were a good thing. And he says, and I'm quoting here, I affirm that those who condemn these dissensions between the nobles and commons condemn what was the prime cause of Rome becoming free, and give more heed to the tumult and the uproar that these dissensions caused than to the good results that followed from them, not reflecting that in every republic there are two conflicting factions, that of the people and that of the nobles, it is in this conflict that all laws favourable to freedom have their origin, as may readily be seen in the case of Rome. End quote. So, what does that mean? Well, the first part of Machiavelli's story is there's necessarily two factions. Necessarily. Machiavelli isn't someone, he's not a Marxist who thinks that class will disappear eventually. There'll always be an elite. That elite might be changed and altered or even destroyed altogether and a new elite established. But there'll never be those who aren't powerful within a state. Machiavelli, I think, holds it as axiomatic that there'll always be frameworks of power, albeit different ones, and of different kinds. And then he says that there are two different dispositions. He doesn't say circumstances. He doesn't say, like, you know, economic underpinnings. Machiavelli's description of class conflict is primarily psychological rather than economic, and it's driven by the desire to dominate, humiliate even others. And again, I've got a whole single episode on humiliation that I needn't get into. But the idea is this. It's not enough for those in power to simply be in charge. They have to really revel in it. They have to put their foot down on the people beneath them. They have to dominate them. They, they often use that dominating power to, to humiliate the, the people under them. And those under them desire not to be dominated, not to be humiliated, right? So that's the first part. You necessarily have two classes with competing desires. 
The second part is that conflict is inherently unstable. The people will be oppressed and oppressed and oppressed, and oppressed isn't quite what dominated and humiliated is, right? And it's not necessarily about having more money, right? It's about being in a position to dominate, right? Now, eventually, there'll be a big, you know, emotional and often irrational explosion of the popular will. There'll be this big pushback, this big riot. The, the definitive case of this for me is in America, in the modern age, that is, in America where cities burn after Martin Luther King is assassinated. Now, it's not just that he was assassinated, or at least I don't think so, right? It's the cumulative rage of a lifetime spent in a position of systemic domination and experiencing humiliation, suddenly exploding, right? Um, you can think of, of, of many others, right? Um, Occupy Wall Street, you know, very different, of course, but that would be another one. We've just had enough, you know? Like, that feeling. It's not even necessarily directed at anything. So there's the first part, which is the necessary opposition. There's the second part, which is the explosion. And then there's the third part, which is what happens next. And Machiavelli tells us this is the source of freedom. But actually, he goes on to say there can be three different results here, right? Um, he calls them oppression, liberty, and licentiousness. But... I think for the sake of this, we can simplify them. There's three things that can happen when you get these big moments of backlash, which aren't, it's not regular, by the way. People be oppressed for a long time, then suddenly blow up, right? Or dominated for a long time and suddenly blow up. There's three things that can happen. There can be a total elite victory. And in the total elite victory, the, you know, the, the, the uprising, the, the protest, whatever, just crushed, right? And that's it, and we just move on. There can be a total popular victory, I guess, in the modern age, think something like the Russian Revolution, where just the old elite is just swept out, and there's sort of a moment of anarchy before the new elite is established, right? And then there's what you might call compromise, I'm going to use the word reconciliation for it, where the elite, not because they want to, because they look down on the commoners and despise them, but because they sort of, they, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They give ground. And I think, you know, when we look at, say, American civil rights history as an example, we're kind of naive to think that that was all done by merely peaceful protest, as admirable that, as that was, and as necessary as that was, right, and as inspiring as that was, there was always the threat of something worse. The legitimate threat, by the way, right? There was the threat of, of riots and of destruction and of tearing, just cleaving America apart. And the response of elites was to give a little, you know, over time, and not as much as we all might have liked, but to start to give black America a seat at the table, a seat, you know, such that now, you know, we have, at least within the Democratic Party, a large delegation of black representatives. The black vote is 
probably a veto player in the Democratic primary right now. Now, all of this might be inadequate, right, to redress historical grievances, but it's something, right? And not only was it something that, you know, benefited this oppressed group, but it's something that made America stronger and freer and more powerful. It brought more people in to what it is to be an American, and by doing so, made America greater and more powerful. And that's the final part of this story with Machiavelli, is if you do get what he calls liberty, what I think in this case you can call reconciliation, a compromise, where some of that anger and so on is brought in and we dignify it and we say, hey, we'll give you a seat at the table. Th that actually it's not just good for the people protesting, it's good for the state, because the state can then draw on that energy and bring it in. And I think what Machiavelli's trying to tell us here is that actually both sides of that equation have something to bring to the table. The elites are arrogant, they're unpleasant, they look down on the commoners, they don't view the commoners as having, you know, equal standing with themselves, but also the elites are the ones who have been running the state. And, you know, what they bring to the table is procedural knowledge um, and stability, you know? They bring a sort of framework for everything to happen in. Now, people will say here, and you, you will say when I start to apply this to the Democratic Party, but there's no reason the population couldn't do that. There's no reason that, you know, the Wall Street protesters couldn't train themselves in how to you know, manage the treasury or something. And I'm sure you're right. I'm not saying there's anything like innate that makes the difference. What I'm saying is that at the present moment, the Wall Street occupiers, if that's what you call them, the Occupy Wall Street people, you know what I mean, they don't know how to do that yet. So if in a single day we were to do a Russian revolution and just replace everybody in an administrative position in our government, which is something like a million people, with someone from Occupy Wall Street, the result would be not so good, right? Like, that would probably significantly weaken the state, right? So a total popular victory doesn't necessarily make sense. On the other hand, the masses, the many, the population, they have energy and enthusiasm and numbers on their side, right? So you can have a stable, elite-ruled state over time, but Machiavelli tells us you'll never have an empire, and you'll never be powerful, unless you include the population. And he draws the contrast between the Venetian Republic, which had a very stable oligarchic regime over time, and Rome, which had much more vociferous, chaotic, you know, incendiary politics that seemed disordered, but actually had a stability to it and was hugely expansive. And that sort of rings true for world history. You know, great empires, think of like America or Britain even, have found ways to not just satiate, not just compromise with popular anger, but to incorporate it and to use it, right? And that usually doesn't come out of any um, 
benevolent concern by elites. It often doesn't even come out of any clever recognition of their own long-run self-interest. It's just sort of a happy accident that they kind of ended up in a position where they were forced to. So to summarise then, we have these two opposing desires, that of the few to dominate and humiliate and that of the many not to be dominated and humiliated. And occasionally, step two, that humiliation will explode, you know, big, aggressive ways. When that happens, one of three things can happen. The elites can win, in which case the state will be weakened because they will, it might be stable, but they will lose access to that energy to that strength in numbers that could have been harnessed by bringing the masses in and giving them a seat at the table. Number two, happens less commonly, but it does happen, is you get a total popular win and the old elite is just swept aside. What happens there is you have energy and enthusiasm, but no structure or procedural knowledge, and the result there is chaos. And there'll be a short period of chaos before a new elite arises, right? But again, the state will be significantly weakened. The third one is liberty or reconciliation. And when that happens, the state retains a structure and some procedural knowledge, but it brings into it, it brings into what it has at its disposal, this energy and this anger even, and these numbers of people, and the state remains stable-ish, but it also has energy, enthusiasm, and numbers, and that's the sort of state that takes over the world. That's the Machiavellian story. Okay, what was the point of any of that? So yes, yes, Toby, we know you like Machiavelli. We hope you're happy that you told us about it for the fifth time. What does this have to do with how you started the story about the... um, Democrats not really being very good at winning elections? Well, how very glad I am you asked. So let's take the Democratic Party. Now, like Plato did, you know, when he looked for justice in the city and the soul, I've looked for class conflict in civilizations or nations. Now I'm going to look for it in an institution, this party, and see if I can find the same thing. There. Just a quick definition of party. By party, I'm including everyone who puts in labour towards the Democratic Party, more than just voting. I'm not including voters, even loyal voters, base voters, primary voters. I'm including any elected official, anyone who works for the party, Anyone who works for, like, an affiliate group, like a campaigning organisation, or maybe even a think tank that's closely associated, or something like that, a fundraising apparatus, um, DNC, any of these things, right? Anyone who either works for them or gives labour for them. Now, that might be unpaid labour, it might be volunteers, but I would count activists, and I'm getting to this, but people who regularly volunteer in, in elections as part of the party. Right? So my, this is just a definition to just get me off the ground. It's kind of fast and loose, but just roll with me. Anyone who sort of consistently puts in a fair amount of labour, say more than a few hours a week on average. Um, maybe even like, hey, being an online activist, it gets a lot of stuff, but like being very engaged in that sense might make you a member of the party by my definition. First step of the analysis there are necessarily two classes 
defined by opposing desires. Yeah, clearly, right? The first class, let's call the elites. These are elected officials, both, you know, our congressmen, people at the local level, um, people who head think tanks, people who like run big fundraising groups, the sort of leadership of the sort of campaign organisations. Not a huge group, right? A minority, quite a small minority of the party. Not tiny. I mean, if you add it all up, it's like got to be in the tens of thousands, right? The next group I would call the activists. They're the workers in this sort of mini-state, right? The activists are the people who go out and knock on doors. They're the people who make the phone calls, they're the people who are the field directors and the campaign staffers, right? Now, if you add together everyone who sort of consistently gives labour to the Democratic Party, it's not more than a percent or two of the population, but it's, it's, it's probably at least a million people, right? I, I talked to some friends about this who are sort of Democratic Party activists, and they reckon it was like three or four million. I really don't know. That seems high to me. Maybe like, say, between one and two million people, right? So all of this is quite small. We're talking a, a very small percentage of the American population here, and this is not... I'm separating this out from the voters themselves. One thing I want to stress here is the activist class in the Democratic Party is not the same as the base, okay? It's not the same as the primary voters. I'm talking people who are within this institution in terms of giving labour and having interactions with it as an institution, as opposed to just something that they see on TV. So the first step, are there these two classes? Yes. Are they marked by competing desires? Again, yes. And this, this won't be immediately clear to people who haven't spent time in activist spaces. Um, but, like, field staff get treated really badly. Like, this is, this is slightly improving now, but the time was, you know, you would earn, if you were paid, that is, and often you weren't, like $10 an hour knocking doors or whatever for a party that its stated position is that that's a poverty wage. Um, there's often a sort of sneering contempt of field. I've worked for a lot of organisations where people actually won't make eye contact with canvassers and field staff. They think it's, like, dirty. Now, again, this is a very aristocratic opinion. Think about ancient Greece or ancient Persia or medieval Europe. Those who sort of work outdoors or work with their hands, they're lower class, they're uncouth. And I think if you ask... a a lot of people, oh, and the hours as well, if you're an activist, if you work on a campaign, you're expected to work 12-hour days, seven days a week. Why? Does any other industry do that to you? Is there any particular purpose for asking for that? Unless you're a week or two out from an election, none whatsoever. It just makes people less efficient. But again, remember Machiavelli, the urge is to dominate and humiliate. You're here because you're super passionate about the party and you want to make a change, and we're the gatekeepers to allow you to do that, right? We can accept you or not, and if you want to come in, you're going to have to do it by our rules. Take that clipboard, go out, take our patronising lectures. And conversely, the masses desire not to be dominated and humiliated. So they, in turn, resent the leadership of the party. And there's sort of a simmering anger 
against them and a desire to, like, I'll show them, right, that they're hypocrites, that they don't really believe what they believe and they're useless to boot. They don't win elections, right? We've been following bad generals. Now, you might think that's a bit excessive, and I am sort of playing it up, but just ask people who've done a lot of activism. Ask them about activist burnout. It's a real thing, right? Ask them... You know, I, I at this point know hundreds of people who've spent years in campaigning, either overtly political or some sort of activism, and I would say a clear majority have been harmed by it in some way. That's not to say it wasn't worth their doing. It's not to say they didn't accomplish anything. It is to say that there's a psychological toll to it, and there's a psychological toll that's often unnecessary, and that often is gratuitously inflicted on them, right? So the first part, are there these big competing desires? Yes. Second part, do you occasionally get sort of almost out the blue, these explosive uprisings. Yes. Now, I can do a bunch of these, but Corbyn taking over the party was one of them. Another was Sanders challenging Hillary in 16. Um, so let's just, just take the Sanders one. What people often portray it as is this is a revolt of the voters of the party the base against the elites. That misses the point a little, because remember, the voters went for Hillary by about four million votes. She clearly won the popular vote there. No, what happened was the activist wing of the party, which had initially liked Obama, actually, by the way, had lost their patience with their elites, there's another element to that story which is gender and many people having a backlash against a female candidate. But I'm, I'm going to try and avoid external factors. I'll just note that that is an external factor that comes into that story, but I'm going to try and tell the story internally. So there's kind of this explosion, and there's it matches it, doesn't it? Energetic, large-scale, angry backlash against the elites, right? Now... Step three, one of three things can happen here, and I think this is where we start to understand why left-wing political parties has been failing. But, so let's just start by going through the three scenarios and seeing if we can find analogues to this in the internal functioning of political parties. So the first scenario is elite recapture. There's this big, angry uprising, but it's insufficient. And ultimately, the elites are able to simply put it down without offering any concessions. But as they do so, they weaken the state because they deprive themselves of access to numbers and energy and enthusiasm. Well, doesn't that just look like the 2016 primary to you? So to start with, I, I think the 2016 primary is a perfect model of one of these things. Like, even if you just look at, like, the personnel, the people who were sort of leading the charge for Bernie very much 
apart from maybe one or two higher-ups, met this activist portfolio and uh, activist sort of description of a person, sorry. And almost every single activist I knew, and, you know, anecdotal, but this is hundreds of people, was on the Bernie side of that primary. And to us, it seemed inevitable. Now, to the elites, they were incredibly shocked that it did so well. Now, remember, you know, to go back to the state, aristocrats are always shocked by popular uprisings because they think ordinary people are stupid and will put up with anything. In a similar way, the people who run the Democratic Party think the activists on whose labour they depend are stupid. And so that they would be able to pull something like this off Nobody really seriously considered he was a token candidate, a factional candidate. People said the same about Corbyn. Nobody thought Corbyn could win. Nobody. But just staying with this, I think you have a very clear model here where the rebellion was put down and Hillary won. And you, again, you can see here, it wasn't a rebellion of the people against the elites. You have to define it more narrowly. It's within one party, the sort of worker class of that party, revolting against the leadership class of that party. But it was crushed and no concessions were made. Now, that's a bit glib. Hillary did make some policy concessions. And I think to her great credit, something we've learned recently is Warren worked behind the scenes to get concessions from Hillary for her endorsement. And this, this makes me love Warren, by the way. But Warren was saying, OK, in terms of my endorsement, I'm going to need you to put these people in these roles. Remember, of course, Warren's background as someone who was denied leading the bureau that she'd created because of pressure from Republicans. And so Warren's doing the right thing here. Warren's saying, you need to make some concessions to this. You need to give them a seat at the table. This, this lower class, these activists, we need... We didn't win, but we got close enough, and we need some of our people in there. And either it wasn't done, or that message didn't go out, or it wasn't understood, but I think the Sanders wing just left that feeling crushed. Now, I've criticised this a lot, but in that moment, this model of looking at it kind of explains where this sort of conspiracy theory comes in. Because to the Sanders ideological narrative, they don't distinguish between the class struggle of society writ large and the class struggle writ small within the Democratic Party. So to them, yes, they're activists fighting against elites, but they are essentially just the representatives, the vanguard of the oppressed people more fully. But then when you get that result, where Hillary just wins, it's sort of hard to make sense of that. Did the people, you know, poor people, majority black support, really go to the sort of overlord, the oppressor? That, as a Marxist would say, you've now involved yourself in a contradiction. Now, there's two ways out of it. One, which I think makes more sense, is to say the class struggle writ small within the party is separate from and distinct from the class struggle of society 
writ large, and they sometimes run together and they sometimes run apart. That's how I process it. They didn't, and I don't think, were able to make that distinction, and so it was that Hillary cheated, right? But either way, I think because no, not enough clear concessions were offered, you know, it was always going to be the case that those people were going to be to put it mildly, unhappy about that. Now, on the Hillary side, I think this was their mistake. They went down and they looked, and they said, but if you look at policy, you know, they wanted a commitment to a $15 an hour minimum wage. We went to 13 You know, they, they wanted a, a commitment about police violence. We, we, we really made that commitment. Um, you know, what? there's not that much of a gap to close. Why are they so angry? And I think that was really naive on their part. I think there was this class conflict element that people felt humiliated. They felt disrespected and they needed to assert themselves again. And the answer to that wasn't policy concessions. It was seats at the table. And I think that was a very, very easy fix. And so... Chris Armitage, when he was on, he was like, why could they not have just made Bernie VP? And it would be a weird combo, and I know they clearly don't get on, but this isn't about personalities at this point. It's about we need to, to come together to win. Um, um, maybe not Bernie. There was some consideration of Warren at the time. Something that sends a signal, we've heard you. We see that you're angry. You will be part of our decision-making from now on. You've earned your seat at the table, and it wasn't done. And I think, you know, it's, it's really complicated to assign the blame here, because, of course, it's very difficult for Hillary to do that. After Bernie stays in for almost two months, after it's mathematically impossible for him to win, all the time going after Hillary and, like, forcing her to use resources that she could have used against Trump. On the other hand... I think there was like a naivety on the part of the Clinton people that they just didn't see how angry people were. And so I think there's plenty of blame to go around. But the, the facts remain that at the end of the day, the revolt was crushed. Right? Now, what does this theory tell us happen next? It tells us you'll have stability, but weak stability. Well, doesn't that seem to perfectly describe what happens next? You have a conventional campaign. You know, she does what she's, you know, you, you, the elites think you're supposed to do to win. Um, and then just falls short. Now, I'm not going to rehash the, the burn your bust thing here. But if the activist wing of the Democratic Party had been even, like, apathetic about Hillary, I think she would have won. And it's not, you know, are you really going to want to go and do these grueling, hard jobs for someone who has just slapped down your guy, you know? Slapped down your aspirations to be part of, to have a seat at the table of the movement to which you've devoted so much. And it's not just door knocking and so on, though that matters. You know, these people talk a lot about politics online. And even the ones who, you know, did the right thing and voted for Hillary in the end, they were like, man, I just don't like this candidate. And they were very open that they didn't. And I think we're missing the fact that it wasn't just ideological, it was class-based, right? Or like class-based writ small within the context of the Democratic Party. And so we lose. And we lose because... We've taken the wrong way out. 
you've got the way where you just crush the revolt. And it, you, you crush it and you get order, but it's a weak order. I think that matches the narrative perfectly. What about the other extreme, wherein the uprising succeeds too much and the old elite is just swept away and you end up with energy and dynamism, but also with chaos, without order, without procedural knowledge or structure to that energy? Well, doesn't that just look like Corbyn? Right? In that, and again, blame here is difficult to assign. You know, Corbyn coming in and taking over the party, what did he claim? What did those activists claim? Because it was the activists who put him in. The Parliamentary Labour Party certainly didn't want him. The elites certainly didn't want him. Right? What did he claim? Did he claim a seat at the table? Or did he just sweep everyone else out? So to the extent he did the latter... He does bear some responsibility for what's going to come. At the same time, the elites had this very aristocratic, sneering view of him, where there's one read where they kind of refused to accept him from day one, and they were just like, we'll sink our own ship, rather than sort of work with this guy. Um, I think it's probably a bit of the two. I think he was a poor manager, and didn't, like, include people very well. I think also he just sort of didn't want to include people. It's also clear that the Parliamentary Labour Party would cut off their nose to spite their face, and they were against him from day one, and I don't hold them blameless either, right? But what's the result? The result is the activists are running the show now, right? The lower class... Of, this is, a, this is, this is the, the Russian Revolution writ small, right? In that we've just swept away the old regime. Um, it, it happened over a longer time period, and it's a bit more complicated than this. And there were attempts to remove Corbyn, and it was clear that the activists had enough strength to keep him in. You know, I won't go through all the details, but what ends up happening? What ends up happening is the, the, the converse, is you have energy and enthusiasm and whatever, but without structure, without procedural knowledge. And, and what do I mean by that is, historically... Through the Blair era, the Labour Party was always quite good with the press, right? Always quite good media engagement, very savvy, very smooth, you know, when you do interviews. None of that, right, in the Corbyn government. And even in your intermediate steps like Miliband, you know, he wasn't the best at it, but, like, there was clearly a press operation there. There was clearly, like, people doing all of the usual elite stuff that, you know, that this inter-party elite does to win campaigns. You get the feeling by the time Corbyn comes in, they're just not doing any of it. The press are just your class enemy. Class now in the broad societal sense. And that's it. And the idea was that, oh, the energy and enthusiasm from our volunteers will overcome that? And the answer is equally no. Like, you actually need both halves of that equation. And that here's what the data says. Activism makes a difference. Um, you know, having a great field outreach campaign will add a few more points to your total. And I think it probably did for Corbyn. I think had he not had that energy, it would have been even more disastrous. And conversely, for Hillary Clinton, had she had that energy, she'd have won. No doubt in my mind, had the activists been with her, she'd have won. But, 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 if you have just lost a quarter of your electorate, 
activism is not going to save you. And activism, again, I mean door knocking, I mean going out, I mean all of this. I also mean like just talking to people online, people who post a lot about politics, people who sort of talk to their family and friends about this. All of this rubs off, right? So the activist wing, I saw them on my Twitter, very much out there representing Corbyn online and in person. It did something, but just considering the utter shambles that that campaign was in other respects, it wasn't enough. Now, Hillary ran a conventional enough campaign, but didn't have that, right? Now, in this, I think we can start to understand why it is so important for both sides to assert that their side would have won, right? I said before, I'm going to try and provide an explanation for just why this is as vicious as it is, is that it looks like people are talking about ideology. It looks like they're talking about centrism versus progressivism or socialism even. And they are on one level. And on another level, they're talking about class conflict. And it's sort of a coded way sometimes subconsciously coded, of talking about their class. And I'll try not to get outside the model, but what's happened is it's kind of seeped out. It's kind of got out into the broader public, and people who aren't activists or elites or involved with the party have sort of taken on this discourse and start representing it and start feeling the emotion, the really painful emotions of disrespect and anger and frustration that are embedded within this discourse, sometimes without even having first-hand knowledge of the origins of it. But then let's go back to my question. Why is it so important for centrists to point to the UK election? And even though the narrative doesn't fit and doesn't make sense in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, ha-ha, we told you. Socialism fails, you know, L on forehead, losers, losers, this goading, taunting, nastiness. Why is that important? Well, because from a class point of view, this is like aristocrats in England looking at the Russian Revolution and go, we knew you guys would fuck it up. What have you done? What have you done? And remember again, elites always think the masses are stupid. They don't think they're capable of exercising agency, right? This just proves that they're stupid. But again, there's an element of truth in it. It's not that the, the masses, the activists here, were stupid. It's that they weren't set up to, you know, do all of the things like media operations, smooth, smooth presentation, that normally go along with running a campaign. They only had one half of it. Now, they could have learnt, but they were sort of shut off from that procedural knowledge because the elites were either cast out or withdrew themselves. And it showed the perception of Corbyn was as someone who was just unthinkable as Prime Minister. Now, I don't think that's a reflection of Corbyn as such. It's that he didn't do all of the things that politicians normally do to establish credibility with the population. And he didn't do them because there was no elite left anymore to do them, and, like, no time or ability to train up and develop a new elite. So the elites aren't wrong. They're not wrong to say, if we hadn't had this complete takeover, 
we wouldn't be where we are now. And it's really important for them to say that because it's not just about ideology, it's about class. And it's about we have the, you know, these elites are jerks, right? We have the right to rule. How dare this person take our right away from us? And look what happens when they do. That's what that anger is about. And how dare they be trying to do it here in America? Look, you plebs, you hoi polloi, look what will happen. Finger wag, right? That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. Now, why is it so important for people to, on the other side, to say, well, I suppose, what about 2016 then? You know, you want to you have a Hillary Clinton all over again? And, like, I'm trying to give it to you, and the emotion's getting in my voice. This is such an emotional discourse, isn't it? Why? Because class conflict, as I understand it, is grounded in feelings of domination and humiliation. And these are some of the most important moments of our lives, insofar as they're some of the worst moments of our lives. Right? These are some of the most emotionally white-hot experiences that we can have. And that's what's funneling all of this, right? So why is it so important for them to keep bringing up 2016? Like, we lost an election. Nobody particularly feels this way about John Kerry. Why do we feel it so strongly about Hillary? Because John Kerry, although he was certainly never beloved by the activists, wasn't the instrument of putting down one of their rebellions. Hillary was. And look, she lost by tens of thousands of votes, not much at all, in these key states. Had the activists been on board, she would have won. There is absolutely no question she would have won. She assembled a basically the same voter coalition as Obama. She had a very similar sort of messaging and policy platform. It was an Obama third term. And I made this point at the time, trying to get people on board. But ultimately, as much as I don't agree with this, I can understand it. You know, these people, you know, they, they, they felt like they were humiliated, they were disrespected, they were talked down to, and it wasn't wrong for them to feel that way, because they were. They were. They stood up for themselves. They collectively asserted, we are a part of this party too. We get to be heard, and they were crushed. How are they going to feel? And I think that's a much more coherent explanation of the story than, oh, Hillary's a neo-corporatist or a warmonger or whatever. Like I said, the policy divide between her and Sanders is not as big as you might imagine it would be, but it wasn't about that anymore. And that fundamental, somewhere between defeatedness and frustration and just residual, powerless anger. That bled its way out into the world. And, you know, to be fair, many, not all, many of the activists I know voted, but they did so unenthusiastically. And if, you know, more people had been there, and many activists did do, did do their part and went out and knocked doors, I'm not saying they didn't. But if, if all of them had done it, as opposed to like, like half of them, and if what had been done hadn't been done as half-heartedly, and there wasn't this horrible emotional residue, she would have won. There is absolutely no question in my mind, right? Um, now, you can blame the activists for it, and I have. 
I've talked about burning your busters, right? But you also, you also have to blame the elites. Warren saw it coming, to her credit. Hillary did not. To her eternal discredit. Now, the thing is, though, elites very, very rarely give ground unless they have to. If you look at human history, even when it is in their strategic self-interest, elites tend not to share power. They just don't. And it's one of the most frustrating aspects of the history of class struggle. So, let's recap the ground we've covered. If writ large, we can observe this dynamic of class conflict in the history of states, can we observe it writ small in the institution of a political party? Well, let's go with me. Are there two different dispositions within the party? A sort of arrogant, I know best, I'm entitled to be in charge, everyone below me is stupid and I'm going to disrespect them and degrade them at every opportunity I get. Check, check, check. Is there an underclass, in this case the activists, who resent being dominated and humiliated, who long to have a seat at the table, who long to express themselves, and occasionally will come together and just emotionally and sometimes irrationally say enough is bloody well enough? Yeah, happens all the time. Right? You get these activist revolts, um, which again are separate from revolts of the sort of electorate, right? The electorate may choose to either side with the elites or the activists, right? Yes, absolutely. And then three things can happen. You can either get the elites put the revolt down, and I think 2016 is that pretty clearly. You can get the activists win too much and just sweep the elites away, I think that's Corbyn. Well, what does the middle one look like? What does reconciliation look like? Where, where the activists don't win completely, but room is made for them, and they're brought in and they're given a seat at the table, and we're able to harness that energy and that strength in numbers, but within a structure and within a framework that has procedural knowledge and can do all of these other functions that parties are required to do. What does that look like? Well, I'll give you two examples, and they're both from the political right. I would say the Tea Party revolt is a good example of that. And, you know, to some extent, Donald Trump is a good example of that. So let's go through in turn. I don't know it as well, but I do clearly get the sense that there is an equivalent class divide within the Republican Party. There's the elites and the activists. Now, these are very different types of people, and they believe very different things about the world, but I think there's still a class conflict there. And you can sort of see this in how the party grapples with sort of quote-unquote popularism, which is a term I almost always try and use because it just basically means nothing at this point. But one of the things people said in the 2016 Republican primary when Donald Trump won is I was really taken by surprise how much the Republican base hates their leadership. I don't think that's quite true. I think the Republican activists hate their leadership. And if you buy the theory that I'm peddling, it's no surprise that they hate their leadership. After all, in both parties, although they believe very different things, the activists do the work and the elites get the reward, right? That there's bound to be 
resentment on one side and self-justification and arrogance on the other. Remember, ideologies aren't just something elites tell to the people below them to justify their rule. Ideologies are something elites tell to themselves, right? We're in charge because we're the smart ones. We know what we're doing. The people below us are stupid. And isn't that just something you hear again and again from, like, the leadership of parties when they're fighting off these revolts? Is we know what we're doing, right? Why is it important for them to insist on that? Because it's an expression of class antagonism. But anyway, if you think it's surprising that Republican activists hate their elites, then you simply haven't been paying attention. Remember Eric Cantor? The guy in the House leadership who was primaried and lost his seat to some Tea Party guy? A lot of people were. Remember those big classes of people who were coming in? Now, the Tea Party starts as sort of a big revolt, chaotic expression of these... I mean, Republican activists, I guess you could call them. Right-wing agitators. I don't... These are, like, such toxic people that we don't really think of them as such. But that's sort of what they are, right? And what happens? Are they completely put down? No. No, not at all. Do they completely capture the party? No, but they definitely influence it. They definitely get a seat at the table. They get a caucus within the United States Congress. There's your seat at the table. Right? And they go, and the, and the Republican Party then, through the Obama period, fueled by, yes, a hatred of a black president, but also a frustration with their own elites. They're, you know, the Republican Party's elites, in a similar way to the Democratic Party's, have been saying, yes, we agree with you on this and this and this. But, you know, we have to go through the system to deliver it, whatever. A feeling that their elites aren't standing up and fighting for them. They're not doing their job and they're being disrespected, right? Again, it's emotional at its heart. It's psychological, not economic. That explodes. And what does the Republican Party do? They harness it. Here's your seat at the table. And then you're punching with both fists. You still have them, you know, the, the, all the stuff you do to establish credibility with the media and big corporations and the general public, all of the sort of fancy talking you do. But you have this energy and this grassroots army and this anger on your side as well. And you take it and you internalize it and you direct it at your enemies. And it was ferociously successful. You know, they, they flip State district after state district, they control almost every state government in the country by the end of Obama's term. And then they sort of have that carrying forward into 2016, and there's another one. They're still mad. But again, the Republican Party sort of absorbs it, and it's like, how did they let themselves get taken over? Well, I wonder if the key word there is let. Now, there's certainly amongst Republican elites an aristocratic contempt for the activists, there's certainly a sort of lip-curling going on. These people are uncouth, they're stupid, they're vulgar. But, and the step Republicans make that Democrats haven't been, or Democratic elites haven't been, but they're useful. How many times have you sort of heard that said quite openly by Republicans? Donald Trump, he's, he's a useful idiot. A blunt tool, as Steve Bannon called him. Well, isn't, isn't that interesting, right? 
And again, it's just this framework I'm talking about. Now, I don't know that it's as self-conscious as, as, as all of that. I think elites give space at the table, not out of any brilliant grand strategy. But sometimes because they just don't have a choice. But they did. And they, once it was clear that was the way the wind was blowing, they didn't push back that hard. Yes, that anger is uncouth. Yes, there's a sort of aristocratic disdain of the Republican elites for the Republican establishment. But okay, you can have a seat at the table. We'd rather that anger was pointed at our co common enemies than pointed at us. And even though it feels like Donald Trump has just captured and crushed the Republican Party, I don't know that it's as simple as that. Now, he's definitely a seat at the table for the activists. The Republican activists freaking loved Donald Trump. He was their guy, right? He was their guy, in the same way as they quite liked the Tea Partiers. But do we have a Corbyn here? Do we have a situation where the, the congressional Republicans and all of their fundraising and all of their media operations and um, Fox News and whatever have just cut ties and left Trump off to flow? Well, not at all, right? No, what you have is a sort of compromise in that the elites are still getting the things that they want. They're still getting the tax cuts for the rich. They're still, by and large, occupying most seats of power, right? They're still getting their judicial appointments. But, you know, this rage, this anger, this, you know, you want to put children in cages? Cool, have at it, boss. You know, seat at the table, ability to... And you know, seat at the table, right? You, you have the President of the United States is your guy, right? But that rage and anger has never been allowed to interfere with key aspects of procedural knowledge. Now, I grant you Donald Trump's, personally, his media presentation hasn't been that smooth, but he still has all of the sort of Republican elites and, you know, their relationships with Fox News and the media generally going out to bat for him. That's still been retained. And you say, oh, it must be so, you know, embarrassing for these people to have to kowtow to him. Well, it's clear Mitch McConnell still has his hand very firmly on controlling the procedures of Congress and is basically owning the process of appointing um, judges to, to higher courts. And as incompetent as Trump is, I think anyone has to acknowledge that McConnell has been terribly, terribly successful at this. So here, here you have reconciliation in both cases, right? You have the, the elites absorb a certain amount of popular anger, give it a seat at the table, while still overall maintaining their own seat at the table. And then you get that combination of structure, procedural knowledge, and energy and numbers and anger and activism. Now, I'm not saying they're doing it perfectly. I'm not saying the Republicans are invulnerable. And certainly with Trump, he's shot himself in the foot a number of times in a way that makes him weak. But I do think that is an, an instance of reconciliation. So to recap, you have two classes, they're necessarily opposed. The lower one, occasionally, because it's humiliated and dominated, will revolt in explosions of anger. Those explosions of anger can go three ways. The elites can crush the uprising, the uprising can sweep away the elites, 
or there can be some sort of reconciliation between the two. The first two of those tend to weaken either the state or the party. The third makes it stronger. There's my city-state analogy. Well, not city-city-state, you get what I'm saying. Um, but there's my analogy between class conflict in the society as a whole and class conflict in a political party. <sighs> okay. I put quite a lot of energy into that spiel. Um, but okay, did you follow all that? So, so I sort of mapped all that out, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That's a coherent narrative that you can tell. And it maps on quite nicely to a number of sort of the elections over the last 10, 20 years. So I think about when Obama won, the activists liked that guy, but he was clearly of an elite ideology and sort of a member of the elite himself who sort of had the affectations. He won. And then it also explains how sort of both sides of this divide when it comes to you know, recent UK and US elections, they both are sort of seeing one side of the truth, and it explains why they feel so strongly about it. But, and it's a big but, as I was mapping this out, I realised in recent history, every time there's been one of these big, like, uprisings, as I've been calling them, there's a clear pattern that's emerged and I mean, there's only a few, so take it as writ. But it sort of explains why the left has been doing so badly. Whenever the left deals with one of those uprisings, it either crushes it or it's crushed by it. Both of which we know lead to weak states or weak parties where you get beat. When the right does, they've usually been able to reconcile with it and hence become stronger. And so this really got me thinking, like, why is that? Why is that? Because there's, there's this sort of ideological divide and class divide on the left, right? The ideological divide is between this sort of, like, third-way, market-based, centrist, liberalism, compromisey, Bill Clinton, Obama... Um, Joe Biden sort of liberalism, and the sort of more aggressive left populist, maybe socialist in the case of Bernie Sanders, that's much more comfortable with using the government to get big programs, particularly universal healthcare. Um, and you can see an equivalent divide within the UK Labour Party, right, between the, the right and the left of, of, of that party. So there's this sort of ideological divide, and then there's the class divide. Um, Within the American right, you also have an ideological divide and a class divide. You have social and economic conservatives, and you have activists and um, elites. So why is it that they're able to reconcile in one case and not in another? Why is it that the ideological expression, the ideological coating which this class divide has been given, is white-hot? in the left side of the aisle, and kind of behind closed doors, and certainly there, and certainly there's a divide, but nothing that's destroying that side of the aisle as much on the right side. And I sort of puzzled over this, and I puzzled over this, and I said, well, 
I can come up with reasons that are external to the model, right? So, just for instance, I think the divides on the left that we talked about, for, like, ideological reasons that I won't go into, they're necessarily more in tension than those on the right. I think, you know, economic, there's clearly this alliance of social and economic conservatives right on the right, and they're comfortable in it. Um, but then I also think there's been races. There was um, this, um, I don't know if you saw it, there's this very high-profile um, local race in Queens, in New York, between Melinda Katz, who's a sort of, she's an elite, but she's quite a liberal elite, and Tiffany Caban, who was clearly an activist you know, liberal lefty challenger. And if I'd have given you both of their platforms, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference, right? So it wasn't about ideology there. It was about class. It was about activists taking control over the party. Another one would be the really intense competition we had for the DNC chair that Tom Perez, the elite candidate, eventually won. But that was really intense, and again, not clearly about ideology at all, it was just about class, and it doesn't, on the left, we don't reconcile those class conflicts as the same way as we do on the, the right, so ideology is part of it, but doesn't explain all of it, and then I also thought, well, maybe it's that the divide is more generational. On the left, there's a clear divide wherein older people are, um, more sort of centrist and younger people are more progressive. And there's not social and economic conservatives don't necessarily pass out that way, and maybe something that has something to do with it. And I just sort of found all of this unsatisfying because it's very inelegant. It's very inelegant to sort of map out a theory, and then when there's a question asked within that theory, have to bring in other factors. That's the, that's the start. It, it offends against parsimony. And that sort of was my starting point with trying to put together this account, was can it work by itself without external factors? And then it just came to me, and I realised what the difference is. And once I realised it, I realised that's the answer. You ready? In both the political left and the political right, there is an ideology divide, and there is a class divide within those parties, not within the whole of the left in America or the whole of the left and the right, but within the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. There's a class divide and an ideology divide. And just to keep the model very simple, and I know there'll be all sorts of permutations and middle points and whatever, but in both parties there's activists and elites, and in um, the Republican Party there's social and economic conservatives. So there's two ideologies two classes. In the Democratic Party, two classes the same, and the ideologies we'll call progressive and liberal, or socialist and liberal. Let's just say progressive and liberal, right? Here's the difference that makes a difference. In the Republican Party, understood again as the sort of writ small of the state, the ideological divides cross-cut the class divides. In the Democratic Party, the ideological divides reinforce the class divides. And I suddenly realised that's it, that's, that's what's making a difference here. And I think this is a relatively new phenomenon, I'm not going to try and explain how it came about, but look, check it out. If you are a Democratic Party elite, so you're a member of Congress, governor, state, senator, what, what have you, right? Almost invariably, you will be expressing yourself in terms of this sort of liberal 
ideology, which is just to say like a way of talking, a way of describing the world, right? Now, increasingly, within the democratic um, activist side, they tend to see the world in this much more progressive way. It is about equality, not just steering markets to help those at the bottom, right? And it's quite rare that there's any overlap. So there are a few, a few um, sort of progressives within, say, Congress, but they're rare. There's like Sanders and the Squad, and those are the ones who use it openly and really identify as such, and they're quite new, the Squad especially. And what's clear with the Squad is they identify as members of the activist class. So AOC did this brilliant thing when someone said, oh, you know, how did you win? And she tweeted a photo of her shoes where the bottom was worn out of them. Now, if you haven't been an activist, you don't know how brilliant a move that was. That was a strong statement of class solidarity. Why? Because anyone who has done physical get-out-the-vote activism has destroyed their shoes. Anyone has, right? It's just something that happens. I've worn through so many pairs doing this. It was a very strong statement of, I am on your side, right? So even where we do have the progressives in Congress, those people still very clearly identify as members of the activist class and are received with a sort of aristocratic hostility by members of the elite class. Some English lord called upon to entertain the local, you know, chief of his farmers or something, right? Resentfully patronizingly, right? Now, in the Republican Party, that's not as obviously the case. I do think it tends to be the case that the elites tend to be more motivated by economic conservatism, and the activists tend to be more motivated by social conservatism. I think that's certainly true. Um, but the story can go too far. The story can go so far as the Republican Party is solely and cynically concerned with tax cuts for the rich and panders to social issues to do it. That's there's a lot of truth to that story, but it is also true that there are genuine social conservatives within the Republican Party elite. There's you know powerful and established people whose primary motivation is um, how to put this nicely a certain sense of racial fear. Right? I don't think Louis Goldman is faking it. I'll put it that way. He would have to be the best actor in the world. And I don't, I don't think Donald Trump is either. You know, it's, it's always the open question, is how much of the Trump persona is genuine. And I don't, I don't know how calculated it is, but, like, his animosity towards black athletes taking the knee, um, his, his clear differentiation in how he talks about black people, when he talks about, you know, you know Mexicans being rapists and thieves and so on, I don't, I don't think it's fake. Like, like, he might use a bunch of facts that are fake, but I think the, his underlying motivation in terms of protecting a certain sort of solidarity formed around the white race, I think that's completely genuine, right? And then to give another example, you remember there was that stretch 
a few years back where every single week some Republican is saying something dumb about rape, like the body will naturally shut that down, or like legitimate rape, and all of that. Well, this is just... This is just how, how old-school misogynists talk, right? They're not... That's not pandering. If it was pandering, it would be structured better. This is just this is just how they think, you know? So although the primary motivation... Someone like Mitch McConnell is a good example of this. I think Mitch McConnell's primary motivation is consolidating a form of oligarchic rule. You know, by drawing from a minority power base... Uh, deregulating business, and on the other hand, undercutting the ability of government to ever re-establish itself with all of these uh, conservative court appointees. I think that's his primary motivation. And indeed, from the inside reporting I've read on McConnell, insofar as it doesn't conflict with that larger project, he's actually kind of pro-civil rights, and, you know, he's certainly not out in the streets waving a flag, but as long as it doesn't conflict with his main goal, he's not against it, certainly. But that's not the only type of Republican in Congress. And I think a lot of the Tea Party people, as much as they expressed it through a sort of libertarian frame, were genuinely outraged by the thought of a black president. You remember that idiot who stands up in the State of the Union and shouts, you lie. And there was another Republican congressman who said to Obama, I'm so disgusted, I can't even look at you, right? These are people who are primarily motivated by, let's be nice and call it social conservatism, right? And same with the activists. Now, the activists are more social conservatives, but there's plenty of libertarians in there as well, right? Um, plenty of that. So there's sort of this ideological mix. And so the barriers are less, right? Someone in the Republican Party can be a class enemy or sort of ideologically different to yourself, or sometimes both. But the divides are less. You can be one and not the other in the Republican Party. In the Democratic Party, you... If you are a class enemy, you are an ideological enemy. And if you're an ideological enemy, you are a class enemy. And it basically, I think, where ideology and class overlap, reconciliation is possible. But where they converge, reconciliation becomes really difficult. And I think that's sort of, that's sort of, sort of where we're at. And the mechanics of that are to the elites, is they can't just accept progressives, because progressives are necessarily a class threat. Think about the cold shoulder and the sort of kept at arm's length and the open disdain that House leaderships have talked about the squad with. These are not our people. In the same way as an aristocrat, you know, who's forced to have one of the commoners to dinner, might make it very clear that I'm not, not associated with this frightful chap. You know, it's, it's that, right? But it's because they're a class threat. Is AOC going to run around primarying our members? We don't want that. But then anyone who's a, who's a progressive shows up that way. So elites react that way to Warren, who I don't think is primarily interested in running around primarying people. But because she's progressive, she shows up as a class threat. Now, activists think that to work with elites is to be a class traitor. So the fact that Warren showed some ability to gain elite support, she got some of the people in the media, whatever, on her side, 
was seen that she, she was a traitor. Now, again, I have to mention an external variable, which is gender, and the whole thing about, like, not trusting people is heavily gendered, but let's just ignore that for now. Warren, instead of her being able to get some elite support was a sign of, oh, yay, we got a progressive who's making tr traction. It's she's a sellout. Now, again, that sellout language is gendered, but just ignore that. Well, what do they mean there? What do they mean? Well, I think what they mean is I don't know that this is a person who's a member of our class. She's probably not, right? And the fact the, so so it's not that, like, they don't make the distinction. So it's not that, like, oh, she's a progressive, but she's not a member of our class. It's she's not a real progressive. Because in the sort of binary white-hot discourse we've got, you're a progressive activist or you're a centrist elite, and there's not a middle ground that we perceive easily. So if Warren's able to attract elite support, it's because she's not a progressive. Now, I don't think that framing is right, but that just shows you when ideology and class divide reinforce each other, reconciliation becomes almost impossible. And so there was a moment, I don't think it's going to be as remembered as it should be within the Democratic primary, where Warren goes up and up and up and she overtakes Sanders and she just starts to tie with Biden, like they're both in the mid-twenties. And I think there was a really key inflection point there in that either side could have sort of said, okay, this might be a reconciliation moment, right? Like, I think that was a great moment for elites to come off the fence and go, you know, we hear you, you were pissed about 2016, you want a progressive, it can't be that guy Bernie because of the Bernie or Bust thing, but you want some of that, of that ideology? Cool. You know, let, let's start getting some of the big mainline senators to endorse you, let's have the party sort of start to rally behind you a bit. They didn't do that. There was a real pushback from within the party, in the same way as there was with Sanders in 2016, and pushback is not conspiracy, right? But, like, people, the elites made it known that this was not their preference, and they started saying, and this was the line, Warren is a hypocrite. Now, hypocrite can have a gendered term, but it also can have a sort of class connotation in that there's a mismatch, right? If Warren doesn't come from the activist class, she comes from a professorial background, which even though she's personally working class in terms of her background, right, she's working class in the broader context of American society, she's not activist class. That's what mattered. And so she's perceived as ingenuine because of that, because she has the ideology but not the background of an activist. Even though she kind of is an activist and she's done a lot of stuff, she's not seen as a member of that class. Now, so the elites sort of turn against her and say she's ingenuine, right? Now, if the left had then rallied behind her and said, oh, okay, well, you know, the elites hate her, but that kind of proves that she's our person. Let's all, let Sanders' supporters sort of move over to her now that she's leading. Again, you could have, then you'd get into this sort of like long, knockdown, drawn-out fight between her and Biden, which I think we could have won. But that's not what happens. Both sides turn on her, right? And so I think what that's symbolic of is that neither the activist progressives or the elite centrists are willing to accept reconciliation moments if and when 
they come along. And that's why we lose, basically. I'm not saying if we nominate Warren, we'll win. I'm saying that's a symbol of a larger trend, right, within the, the, the party. And it's not about Warren as such. It's about the fact that there are two classes that need a reconciliation moment that can't find one. Now, I don't know what the answer to all of that is and what the solution to all of it is, but just having it in your head allows you to translate a number of things people are saying that kind of on the surface don't make sense. So people say only Bernie is a true progressive who'll take on the system. Now, he's in many ways as progressive as Warren is, right? Um, and take on the system. I mean, Sanders doesn't support big constitutional change. I mean, e even Warren, all of them were a bit lackluster in this respect, but even Warren's further down the line than him supporting filibuster reform and stuff like that. Sanders doesn't support any of that. So what do you mean we'll take on the system? Well, it makes sense within the realm of class conflict. He'll take on the elites, right? It's not about winning against the system as a whole. It's about winning against the elites within your own party. Another thing you hear from progressives, Obama sold us out. No, he didn't. On the one hand, if you're looking at it purely through the veneer of ideologies, Obama was always a centrist. He always ran on compromise. And when he talked about hope and change, it was clear that the change was going to be some sort of bipartisanship. That was always the case. So why do people feel like he sold us out? Well, because... He ran wearing the clothes of an activist. A lot was made of the fact that he was a community organiser. You remember that, right? And he was someone we could sort of get on board with for that. But then he didn't have the ideology of a community organiser. And by the end, that was something that he hardly talked about. So the activist class feels profoundly betrayed by Obama in a way that the general public, the sort of democratic voters, simply don't, right? Now... Let's go through um, and look at the sort of upper-class centrists. Um, you know, this insistence that the squad don't represent us, right? It's not really about ideology. You've already said you support the Green New Deal, but you had to say, oh, I support the green thingy, whatever it's called. It's, it's three words. You can remember it. But what do they actually mean by that? Well, it's a sort of aristocratic sort of notion of like, yes, we had to let that ruffian into the club, but he is not representative of what this place is really about. There's also a refrain of like, we know what we're doing. Do you remember Diane Feinstein where she tells off a bunch of children? Who does that? She tells them, I know what I'm doing, and she wags her finger at them because they were like there to talk about the environment. What is that? That's a, elites don't like to be told what to do. They really don't. This I know what I'm doing is a very elite thing. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Take this model of class conflict within parties and then the extent to which the ideologies reinforce it in the Democratic Party and overlap with it in the Republican. Put on that pair of glasses and go around and see how the world looks. And if you hear stuff that doesn't quite gel, including stuff you yourself might well be saying, because almost everyone's on one side of this or another, ask yourself, well, what's actually going on here? How would I cash this out in terms of this underlying, very heated, very nasty and very personal thing that's, um, that, that, that's happening here? Um, and see how that sounds. Now, in conclusion, what has to happen 
you know, how if we, we we need to have some sort of reconciliation within the Democratic Party next time there's one of these big outbursts. How does that happen? I don't know. I mean, basically, the elite has to become more ideologically diverse, I think. We have to have progressives represented within the elites. And I was just thinking, who has there been who's had a big leadership role within the Democratic Party? Cabinet appointee, leader in Congress or whatever who's openly on the progressive side. I really couldn't think. Right? But that's where all of our activists are. They, they need seats at the table. And there's two ways it can happen. We can force it, or the elites can sort of give it. And I don't, I don't know. Like, on the one hand, if there is another Democratic president, and they are not Bernie Sanders, they need to put our people, who are clearly our people, in that cabinet, and I don't know that they... I think Warren will. I know Warren will. But I don't know that Biden will. Obama didn't, right? I don't think that they get it. The other hand is, I think we on the activist side have to be ready to take yes for an answer, right? Um, we have to be willing to accept people who are merely fighting for a seat at the table as opposed to blowing the table away and replacing it with all of our own people. And if that's what Bernie Sanders' people have in mind by crushing the system, then Corbyn truly does become a cautionary tale. If that's what you're envisaging, now Corbyn is relevant to you. Not because of how far left he is, but because of your model of change. So. I think that's what we need, but I don't know how we get there, and I honestly don't see us getting there. I see this continuing, and just to round this out, I'm often seen, and well, doesn't this just make sense? Why do I annoy Bernie people so much? Well, because I'm a class traitor in their eyes, right? You don't take the elite's side. You know, if there's a strike, you don't go to work that day. That We hate that guy, right? So... If we're in the middle of this big ideological conflict, and it's a class conflict at heart, and I'm occasionally saying, you know, the other side kind of has a point here, that's going to get me hated real fast. So I'll say, even though I have upset that side, whose fault is this ultimately? And who ultimately has the most opportunity to change it, but isn't? Well, the elites, obviously. Right? They're the ones who have arrogantly ruled this party and really failed to rule this party for a long time. These are the people who have made a choice to make activists' lives living hell so that they do feel this resentment, they do feel this anger, and they're the ones who've chosen to ignore it once it's happened. Now, in the process of those explosions of anger, have the masses, the activists, chosen to act in ways that are ultimately counterproductive and sometimes irrational. Yes, they have. But they were angry, and they were upset. And they were feeling stamped down upon, and that they needed to, they needed to reassert themselves as people. And when people feel that way, they do irrational things. And we can critique them for it, and I have, and I'll do it again. But ultimately, the real fault has to lie with the people who think they were entitled to that power, who refused to give it up, who abused it, and even when it was necessary in order for them to preserve that power, still would not share it. Those are the people for which the primary moral blame 
has to go. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Okay, I just got done recording that. I did it all in one sitting and um, I'm kind of exhausted, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I ended up going into a bunch of stuff I didn't think I was going into and, uh, you know, getting into it um, in a way that was, uh, you know, you wouldn't think just sitting at a desk and talking into a microphone would be uh, tiring, but it is. So anyway, I hope you appreciated that or enjoyed it, um, even if perhaps you didn't agree with all of it. Next week, we'll be back to interviews and we'll have, you know, I've had so many um, great interview requests recently. We'll be having uh, interviews for the next few weeks, I think. Um, and I am slowly prepping to do um, another big solo um, series, not for not for a little bit, at least. Um, so yeah, if you did appreciate this and you do like this show and you've made it to this point, please consider helping get the word out there. Um, sharing on social media is always terrific. Uh, we do have a Patreon. Um, we've seen some good growth in that recently. So uh, yeah, if you want to chip in a few dollars, that's um, really always great. You can follow us on uh, social media and that's all on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So, yeah, that was um, one of my more uh, involved solo episodes that I've done. And, uh, yeah, I um, hope it was useful. Uh, thank you so much for listening, as always. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.